you got a Bible, open to Revelation chapter 1. Um, we, yes, I said Revelation chapter 1. And so that's where we're going to be this morning. And for the next several months together, we'll be looking at the first several chapters of the book of Revelation together in a series entitled Seven, What Jesus Has to Say to the Church. You know, the book of Revelation is kind of a, a scary book for many people for a variety of reasons. And I think there's two really um, predominant perspectives on the book of Revelation for many people these days. And one is that of fixation. Right? There are many people who take the book of Revelation and they become fixated on it. They open it up next to the newspaper, if you get those anymore, uh, or online news sources, and you're like comparing the book of Revelation to the news headlines, right? Cutting out sequences of letters and pasting them on some kind of board, right? Or you've got big charts running behind the screen with timelines of history and prophecy trying to map out exactly when all this stuff is going to shake down. Right, that's one way that people tend to handle the book of Revelation is with fixation. The other way people tend to handle it is with fear. They just want to push back from it all together and say, those things are too confusing to me, too out there for me. I just can't understand it, and so I'm just not going to even touch it. I'm going to push back from it. But I want you to know something this morning. The book of Revelation was not written to confuse you. It was written to comfort you. Do you know that? It was written to encourage you. Not to cause you to be struck with fear. Because the book of Revelation was written to a group of seven churches in what was then Asia Minor, now modern day Turkey. And it was written at a time in which there was massive persecution that was rising within the Roman Empire against Christians in particular. Here's what was going on, a little historical context for you. In AD 81, a man by the name of Domitian rose to power in the Roman Empire. He became the emperor of Rome. And Domitian was one of the first emperors to demand the title Lord and God, to be called that and worshipped as such. And so as Domitian rolled that out, he rolled from 81, AD 81 to AD 96. And as he rolled out that policy of being worshipped as Lord and God, being addressed as Lord and God, there was a segment of the population that refused to say that Domitian was Lord and God. And those were those who knew that Jesus was Lord and God. Those who bent their knee to Jesus refused to bend their knee in that ultimate sense to Domitian. And as a result, persecution began to rise throughout the Roman Empire. And by the time John receives this revelation in what many scholars believe to be A.D. 95, there have been many Christians who have already been killed. There have been Christians who have been exiled. You had Christians who had, had been drawn and quartered. They'd had their one end of their body tied to one horse, the other end of their body tied to another horse. The horses whipped, ran in different directions, and their arms ripped from their sockets and their legs pulled out of their hips. You had Christians who had holes drilled in their head and molten lead poured in while they were still alive. You had Christians who had been crucified on the road in and out of Rome to show to the rest of the population what happens when you refuse to submit to Domitian and his agenda and policies. You had Christians who had been thrown to the lions and been devoured alive. And you had Christians who had been exiled like John. In fact, in Revelation chapter 1 verse 9, we find out that John is on the small island of Patmos. It's a little small island off the coast of Turkey. And it's, the island is, a, is very small, right? It's about 13 miles from north to south. It's, it's not a very large island situated there in the middle of the, in, in, in the Aegean Sea, not far off the coast of Turkey. And he's exiled there, we're told, because of the testimony of Jesus. 
than the word of God. In other words, he refused to bow his knee to the demands of this deranged emperor who was just by a piece of work, right? So he refused to bow his knee, and so they, instead of killing him, they sent him in exile to an island where Jesus shows up and reveals to him himself. And that's, that's, in essence, the book of Revelation. John receives this revelation from Jesus while he's in exile because he refused to bend his knee to the political powers of his day, to those who were ruling and reigning and, and making deranged demands. And so John receives this revelation from Jesus there on the island. Now, many people are so terrified of the book of Revelation because there's all kinds of things going on in the book of Revelation, Right? Right, I wrote down a few. In, in, in the book of Revelation, you have, uh, you have scrolls and trumpets and seals in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, you have beasts and dragons and locusts in, the, in, in this book. In the book of Revelation, you have a virgin and a baby. You have plagues and armies and angels. Right, you have all kinds of strange things going on on these pages. But listen, one Bible commentator summed it up brilliantly when he said, in the book of Revelation... Right? It's filled with all kinds of scary beasts, but none scarier than some of the people who write about them. Right? Because there's all kinds of strange perspectives on what's going on in this book with charts and graphs and timelines. And yet, remember, it wasn't written to confuse you, but to comfort you, not to terrify you, but to encourage you. And so we want to see over these next eight weeks, this week included, what Jesus has to say at the outset of this revelation, of what he has to say to the church. Because there's these seven letters that are recorded for us in Revelation 2 and 3 that have Jesus' mark on them of his word to the church in the midst of this massive wave of persecution that was crashing and breaking on the mainland of the Roman Empire. But we want to begin this morning by not taking a look at one of these letters to the churches, but by taking a look at the one who is speaking himself. And so we pick up in Revelation chapter 1. If you've got a Bible with you, we'll be in verse, let's pick up in verse um, 7, and, and I'm sorry, in verse 7 and read down through verse 20 through the end of the chapter. If you don't have one with you, it'll be on the screen for you to follow along as I read it here this morning. Beginning in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, it says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, and those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow his eyes were a flame on fire, his feet like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. 
And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those things that are, and those things that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now listen, this morning, what I want you to understand is this, right? The big idea is this, is that in, it, it, we, we look at a text like this and we understand the context of it, where it's coming from. And John's writing to encourage faithfulness and loyalty to Jesus, even to the point of death, as persecution begins to rise around his church. But I want you to consider something, that the same thing that these Christians needed in order to die on account of their loyalty to Jesus is the same thing that you and I need to live with loyalty to Jesus. They are not separate things. They are one and the same. And where it starts is this, is with seeing a vision of the exalted Christ. That's where it starts. That's what they need to die for loyalty to Him, and that's what they needed to live with loyalty to Him. To see this vision of the exalted Christ. Now listen, in Revelation 1, the text that we just read together, John gives eight descriptors of Jesus, very vivid and brilliant descriptions of Jesus that are all rooted back in the Old Testament. Let's run down them real quick this morning. The first one is in verse 13. As John speaks of a triumphant and tender Jesus. says that he's clothed with a long robe and a golden sash covering his chest. It was the garment of a dignified individual, of a person of high position and prestige and privilege in the ancient world. But it also reminds us of the garments of the high priest that were worn by Aaron and his sons in the Old Testament as they tended to the people of God in the temple of God and even tended to the lampstands to keep them burning. It's this image of Jesus being in the midst of his people as a priest who is keeping their fire and their light burning for him in the midst of all kinds of tribulation. There is this tender Jesus, this merciful Jesus, this kind and compassionate Jesus, this priestly Jesus. Second of all, you have this picture of a wise Jesus. If you look in verse, the first part of verse 14, it says that he had white, a white head with white hair. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, one of the things that you see in this vision that God gives to Daniel is as the clouds open, he sees one, the Ancient of Days seated upon a throne and one like a son of man approaching him. And the Ancient of Days is described as one whose hair is white like wool. And John is saying the same is true of this Jesus who is now risen and reigning, that his hair is white like wool. In the ancient culture, this would have represented accumulated wisdom and dignity. In other words, you've got a tender Jesus and you've got a wise Jesus who knows all things, who is infinitely wise, knows how life is supposed to work. In addition, you have a discerning Jesus in this vision. Look at his, in verse 14, at the blazing eyes, the eyes that are set on fire. Once again, it comes out of Daniel chapter 10 because Daniel sees a man whose eyes are burning like flaming torches. 
and it represented this divine insight that he has this sight that's able to penetrate deep to the recesses of our hearts. And he can discern our motives. He can discern our thoughts. He can discern our feelings. He can see everything about us. So you have a discerning Jesus. You also have a mighty and immovable Jesus in this vision. The bronze feet in verse 15 Right, this image also shows up in Daniel 10 and it conveys the idea of power and purity and glory. It says it's like, 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 a, like a, a metal has been refined in a furnace so that it's, all the impurities have been baked out of it and you can see your reflection in it. But the metal signifies that Jesus is firm, that he is fixed, that he's immovable, that nothing can shake him. He's absolutely unshakable. In addition, you have a Jesus whose voice echoes through all of eternity. Look at what he says in the latter part of verse 15, how powerful his voice is. It probably comes out of the book of Ezekiel where in chapter 43 we're told the voice of Yahweh, the voice of the Lord is like the roar of rushing waters. And you think of waves. You ever stood by the seashore when the wind is billowing off of the ocean and it's pushing those waves up onto the, onto the rocks or onto the sand and they're crashing on the sea? It's almost deafening, isn't it? That his voice, it just echoes and carries through all of eternity. You also have a Jesus who preserves and protects. We're told in verse, uh, the, the, the verse, first part of verse 16 that he has stars in his right hand. Later we discover these stars are the angels of the churches, representatives, heavenly representatives of these churches here on earth and that Jesus holds them in his right hand, a place of power. And it's the picture of the fact that Jesus is able to preserve and protect his people in the midst of all the chaos that is being unleashed around them, that no one can ultimately do them harm. But you also have a Jesus who judges. You see a sword coming from his mouth. And I don't think John necessarily sees this long blade protruding from Jesus' mouth. He's describing the words that come out of Jesus' mouth, being able to cut us and divide joint and marrow, as the Bible says elsewhere. That he judges by the words of truth that come out of his mouth. That he sits in judgment as the one who will judge the thoughts and desires of every person and every nation. It's likely rooted in Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 49 where we read that he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and he makes my mouth like the sharpened sword as he judges with the word of truth. And then you come to the end of this description of Jesus and you see how holy he is when his radiant face. It's, it's shining like the sun in all of its brilliance. This is what John sees. In Psalm 84, 11, God himself is called a sun and shield. In Isaiah 60, 19, he's the everlasting light. And the fact that his face is so radiant and so brilliant, the sun and burning in all of its brightness, it indicates he's absolutely holy. He's absolutely holy, he's absolutely glorious, and he is the one who reserves the right to judge. So here's what you have. You have this tender Jesus who is priestly. You have a discerning Jesus, a mighty and immovable Jesus, a Jesus with a voice that echoes through all of eternity, one who is powerful and preserves and protects by clenching his people in his powerful right hand, one who judges with the word of his mouth and one who sits in all holiness and the beauty of majesty. That's the vision that John sees when he turns. This Jesus. Now some of you are thinking, Okay, so what? Let me give you the so what. 
Some of you may be thinking, listen, I don't ever plan on living in a place where I'm going to be drawn and quartered, have molten lead poured into my skull while I'm still alive. I don't ever plan on moving to that place, right? But the same thing they needed to die on account of their loyalty to Jesus is the same thing that you and I need to live for. Listen, you're, I don't know what your problems are, but they probably aren't. They're probably not being drawn and quartered. I don't, I don't know where your challenges are in life, but you're, you're probably not passing your friends as you drive in and out of your neighborhood on crosses because they've been crucified to prove a point. That's probably not your problem. It's not my problem. And so what does this have to say to us? Here's what I, here's, and I want you to hear this this morning, church. First of all, I want you to hear it because it's in the Bible, okay? And it has something to say to us. But second of all, I want you to hear it because you need to hear this in order to live with loyalty for Jesus. As one who is, is, is captivated by him. You need this vision of him. Because the only thing powerful enough to move you to live with loyalty for Jesus is not values, but vision. It's not Christian values, but a vision of the exalted Christ. See, uh, Al Mohler, who was a pres- is a president of Southern Seminary, he released a blog post s- several years ago, I think back in September of 2012. And in that blog post, entitled, Christian Values Cannot Save Anyone, he tells the story of a mother who wrote to an advice columnist for a, um, a, a newspaper in Washington, and she was concerned about her daughter. She was concerned that her daughter, at 16 years of age, had professed that she is now an atheist. She doesn't believe in God. She doesn't have anything to do with God. She doesn't want anything to do with, the, the, with, with church or with her family's religion. She's now an atheist. And so the, 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 as the mom writes to the advice columnist there in the newspaper seeking counsel and seeking wisdom, she makes a statement and the woman who writes the letter to, to the, the advice columnist says this, she had raised her family under strong Christian values and was shocked that her child renounced her religion. Now Mueller says, as you might expect, the secular columnist said that she should respect her child's decision and that, 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 that these matters are matters of individual choice and that she should support and accept her daughter's choice and not be upset about that. But I want you to hear Mueller's response to this this morning. And I think it's brilliant and spot on. Listen to what he says. He says, the real problem does not lie with the columnist's answer, however, with the mother's question. The problem appears at the onset when the mother states that she has tried to raise her family under the same strong Christian values that she grew up with. And then he goes on to say, he says, Christian values are the problem. Hell will be filled with people who were avidly committed to Christian values. Christian values cannot save anyone and never will. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not a Christian value. And a comfort level with Christian values can blind us, can blind sinners to their need for the gospel. He says, this one sentence may not accurately communicate this mother's understanding, but it appears to be perfectly consistent with the larger context of her question and the source of the advice she sought. He says, parents who raise their children with nothing more than Christian values should not be surprised when their children abandon those values. If the child or young person does not have a firm commitment to Christ and the truth of the Christian faith, values will have no binding authority and we should not expect that they would. 
Most of our neighbors have some commitment to Christian values, but what they desperately need is salvation from their sins. This does not come by Christian values, no matter how fervently held. Salvation comes only by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now listen, church, what Moeller says about the way into the Christian faith is also true about our way through the Christian faith. The way into the Christian life and the way through the Christian life, you need the same thing for both. And that is this vision of the exalted Christ. Not just adherence to Christian values, but an adoration of Jesus himself. That's what you need. That's what I need. That's what we all need, particularly in the midst of a culture that is becoming more and more hostile. And less and less, what they would say they're tolerant, but they're less and less tolerant because it's, it's only tolerant so long as it's not Christian. This is what you and I need. We need a vision of the risen Christ to awaken us from our slumber, to awaken and stir the affections of our hearts, to strengthen our resolve and fix our feet in loyalty to Jesus. And the place that you see him is in what he's revealed. That's where you get a vision for him, not only here in this book, but also in all the revelation of scripture. And that's why as we started this year, I challenged you at the end of 2017 to establish healthy rhythms in your life of immersing yourself in this book because what you need in 2018, more than you need a refresher course on Christian ethics, is you need a fresh vision of the exalted Christ in your life and in the life of this church. And the place you see it is in how he's revealed himself in his word. Now, the second thing I want us to see this morning is this. How does John respond? How does he respond? I'm amazed by this. Listen, he faints in fear. <laughs> that's what happens to John. He just falls out in front of Jesus. Right? That's, what, that's, what, that's what, how, the, how you might say it in, in our day and time. Because over and over again in the Bible, when people encounter God, they have the same response, and that is terror. They are terrified. Let me give you a few examples. In Daniel chapter 10, Daniel has this vision I referred to several times already in which he sees one who appeared like a man. And the description is very similar to what we find in Revelation chapter 1. Right? Very similar about his eyes, about his hair, about his feet, about his, 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 his garments and his clothing. And when Daniel sees him, this is how Daniel responds. In Daniel 10, chapter, uh, chapter 10, beginning in verse 8, he says, No strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed and I retained no strength. In other words, I couldn't even stand anymore. He says, Then I heard the sound of his words and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. Daniel has a vision of the pre-incarnate Jesus. Jesus before he comes in human body, before he's born of a virgin. And this is how Daniel responds. He says, I was so weak that I collapsed on the ground, my face in the dirt. And when the hand touched me, he raised me up on my hands and knees and I was shaking because I was terrified. Fast forward, Isaiah chapter 6. When Isaiah sees the Lord high and exalted and seated on the throne, this is how Isaiah responds. 
He sees God in the train of his robe filling the temple with angelic beings hovering around his head crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the temple are shaking every time that he speaks. And Isaiah, here's what Isaiah doesn't do. He doesn't grab a chair and turn it backwards and sit down and say, What up, G-Dog? Right? Brother, we are going to kick it on the Sabbath. That's not what he does. But he pronounces judgment on himself. He says, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. What we have said is not what we have done. What we have celebrated is not how we have lived. I am a sinner. And he falls on his face before the Lord. And then you come to Revelation chapter 1 where John sees this risen and reigning Christ and he doesn't, right, he's not wearing a button-down shirt with pearl snaps and rip that puppy open with his Jesus and my own boy t-shirt underneath. That's not what's going on. He faints before Jesus in terror. In terror. Over and over again in the Bible when people really encounter God, they are pushed back. And they fall in fear. And here's why. It's on account of their sin. It's on account of their sin. You know what the essence of sin is? The essence of sin is this. is to build your identity on anything or anyone other than God. That's the essence of sin. It's to find your purpose and your meaning in life in anything or anyone other than God. It's to pursue Right? As your highest aim in life, to accomplish and achieve things perhaps apart from God, so that God would have some reason to accept you. That is sin. That is the essence of it to find your identity, to find your meaning, to find your purpose in anything or anyone other than God. It's to find it in being cool and popular, to find it in being smarter, the smartest person in the room, right? Some people build their identity on that. Some people on being more successful or more athletic. For some of us, we've killed more deer and caught more fish. I'm a better outdoorsman, right? I can start a fire just by breathing on the wood, okay? Right? That's our identity. And it's apart from God. But what happens, let me ask you a question. What happens when you get around somebody who's a little bit cooler than you are? Or ten times cooler than you are? Or you get around somebody who has more trophies on their mantle than you do. Who's won more awards than you have. Grown bigger businesses than you did. What happens when you get around somebody who has killed more deer and caught more fish? Right? And they can start a fire just by looking at it. What happens when you get around somebody who is superlative in those areas? Who is ten times what you are? What happens? You shrink back. Why? Because you feel less. You, you're, just, you're, you're almost embarrassed. You, you, you cower. It crushes you. And listen, if that's what happens whenever we get around someone who is out of our league, humanly speaking, what do you think happens whenever you get in front of someone who is out of your league, divinely speaking, in holiness? You can do nothing but fall on your face before him. And cower and tremble in fear. And that's exactly how John responds in this moment. Because look at what it says about Jesus just before what he does in verse 17. In verse 16 it says this. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. You know in the Old Testament. This is so rich with Old Testament imagery. In the Old Testament. You know what we learn there? 
is that no one can see the face of God and live. Can't. There at, 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 at Mount Sinai, when, when Moses goes up to meet with God and he says, God, just let me see your face. And God says, that's not a good move, Moses. It's not going to end well for you, brother. Right here, I'm going to hide you behind this rock. And when I pass by, you can see my backside. Because if you see my face, it's not going to end well, Moses. You don't want that, and I don't want that for you. Listen, do you remember a few months ago, whenever we had that solar eclipse? And the, the, right from Seattle to the South Carolina or somewhere, right? It moved right across the whole entire continental U.S. We saw a portion of it here in Dallas. But for weeks leading up to that eclipse, what did the people on the news tell us? Do not stare directly into the sun, right? You remember hearing that over and over and over again. Like no matter where you are, even if it's fully eclipsed, do not stare directly into the sun. Why? Because if you stare and gaze directly into the sun, you will never see another thing in your life because it will burn your retinas out and you will go blind. And that's what they're experiencing here. They've gazed in the fullness of God's holiness and they know their sin and they fall in fear before Him and they tremble in terror. And so John falls out before Jesus because he's seen Him in all of His holiness. He's seen His face. See, what you see throughout the Bible is this, is that what you and I were created for in Genesis chapter 2, what we were created for is to behold the face of God in intimacy and enjoy Him. But on account of sin, right, there were two guardians placed at the entrance to the garden to keep us from the presence of God Himself. And God began to mediate His presence through all kinds of people, through the priests that He assigned. He began to lead His people through kings. He began to teach His people through prophets. And so God mediates His presence because He knows we can't handle the full, unbridled, vision of God in all of his holiness right you haven't you seen the Raiders of the Lost Ark okay right, when they pull that t- t- cover off of the ark and the presence of God comes out and it melts their faces off it's exactly what's going to happen right and yet church it doesn't happen here it doesn't happen here which, which begs the question why why isn't John slain instead of just slumping to the ground? And here's what it is. Listen to what Jesus says. As he goes on in the text, he says, For I am the first and the last and the living one. I died. And behold, I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Death in the grave. You can unlock them. I was dead, I'm now alive, I'm the first and the last. Here's what Jesus is saying. Here's why John isn't slain, but rather just slumps to the ground. Here's why he can faint in fear and not be destroyed. It's because what Jesus has done is the penalty that we deserved on account of our sin that pushes us away from God and all of His holiness. That is God's judgment that would consume us if we gazed upon His face. What he tells Moses has been taken by Jesus. See, at the cross, the judgment of God fell on Jesus so that you and I might know the intimacy and see the face of God once again. That we might behold him in all of his glory and it not consume us or crush us. 
but they want to rejoice in it once again. You see, that's the good news of the gospel. Is that what you and I long for, what your heart longs for the most and what it's looking for in all these other lesser things that you're giving yourself to, like coolness and smartness. What you're really longing for is a vision of the face of God and enjoying intimacy with him and Jesus has paved the way for that. See, you cannot come to God and be comfortable with him in his holiness apart from coming through the person of Christ. That's the only way. So John faints in fear. And listen, you're like, what what does that mean? Here's what it means. One of the ways to know that you are really a Christian and not just someone who was raised with Christian values, because there is a difference. One of the ways to know the difference is that you have had an encounter with God in which your fear, your fear of him turned to faith in him, in which your terror of him melted away because of his tenderness. I'm not asking you, do you have Christian values? I'm not asking you who you voted for in the last election. I'm not asking you, right? Do do you help little old ladies across the street? What I'm asking is, have you had an encounter with God in which your fear turned to faith and your terror was melted away by the tenderness of God and His mercy in Jesus Christ? Are you a Christian? Have you come to a place where you welcome, listen, if you go back to the vision of Jesus, where you welcome the discernment of Jesus and the judgment of Jesus in your life, where his eyes, as they penetrate and they see down in the depths of your heart, you welcome that. And you welcome the words of his mouth as he speaks judgment because you know what he's doing is cutting things out of your life and preparing the ground of your heart to be planted with good seed that would bear good fruit. And so you welcome that. Because you've had this encounter with God. Not that you came down and got baptized and took a photo, right? Not that you went to camp as a child or went through Awanas or VBS, but you had an encounter with God and your terror turned, it was melted away by his tenderness. And now you receive his discernment. You want it in your life. Receive his judgment because you know it's cutting things out of you that will destroy you. And the holiness of God and all of his brilliance, it becomes something that's attractive to you rather than repulsive from you. Because you've come to a place in your life. Listen, have you ever ever tried to take two magnets and put them together? You ever take two magnets and try and, 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 and force them together, particularly strong magnets? Well, if you take the positive pole of a magnet and the positive pole of another magnet, you try and force those together, what happens? They just bounce off of each other, don't they? They just push each other away. But if you take the positive pole of one magnet and the negative pole of another and you push those toward each other, what happens? They suck together and they are drawn and attracted to each other. Has there ever been a moment in your life in which God, who is the ultimate and infinite positive pole of holiness and glory and beauty, that you've been drawn and attracted to him because you have turned from sin to trust in Christ and there's been a humility that's been birthed in your life that's moved you from saying, Jesus, I'm gonna reign and rule my own life. I'm gonna govern my own life. I'm gonna call the shots. I'm gonna make my own decisions without your counsel. I'm gonna do whatever I please. That is our natural bent as human beings. That's how we come out of the womb. 
And we come out as positive poles. And so when we try and, when, when, when we try and approach God, it's just like bouncing off constantly. Saying, I'm going to run my life. I'm going to run my life. I'm going to run my life. And when we say, I'm not going to run my life, boom. We're drawn into His holiness. Has that happened in your life? Has the wisdom of Jesus moved from being outdated and unrefined practices of former centuries to being the lifeblood of how you live? There's a big difference in being raised with Christian values and being a Christian. And it starts by your fear and terror of the holiness of God being melted away because Jesus comes and he places his hand on you and says, fear not. Fear not. I died for you. I'm alive. And I hold the keys to everything. That's how John responds. But I want to close this morning by asking, showing you how you and I should respond. Listen, if, if all this is true, if this Jesus really is as great as he reveals himself to be, and, and listen, he is. If he really is, then how do you and I respond? And here's the only logical response, is that we make Jesus our alpha and omega points for life. We make him our alpha and omega point. Well, several times in the book of Revelation, we see this, where Jesus, we're told that Jesus is the first and the last. In 1.8 we read, I am the alpha and omega, says the Lord God. In 1.17, Jesus says, I am the first and the last. In Revelation 22.13 we read, I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And here's the point, church. Here's the point. Jesus is saying, everything starts with me and everything's gonna finish with me. Right? I kicked all of this stuff off and I'm gonna draw it all to a conclusion. And if everything starts with me and everything ends with me, then everything in the middle should be moving from me and toward me, including your life. If Jesus really is this tender and this discerning and this powerful and this mighty and this immovable and that he can preserve us and he can protect us and that he judges rightly and that he sees to the depths of our hearts and that he is all that he is in all of his holiness, if he really is all this, then the only logical decision is to say, he will be my alpha and he will be my omega. I won't just give intellectual assent to these truths that Jesus is first and Jesus will be last, but I will actually order my life that way. I will order my life around the lenses of seeing everything beginning in my life in Christ, through Christ, for Christ. And I will order my life so that everything is moving towards Christ. Right? So that there's nothing off limits, there's nothing off the table, that God has an all-access pass to every part of my life, every facet and every aspect. Everything is starting with Him, everything is ending with Him, and everything is moving from Him and to Him. That's what it means for Him to be the alpha and omega point of your life. That you don't just set off to chart your own course, but you say, you look through the lens of what would be honoring to Jesus in this moment, what would be honoring to his bride, his church in this moment, what would be honoring to my fellow believers in this moment. And what am I leveraging my time and energy and efforts toward as we move toward the end of all human history when Jesus wraps it all up? My serving him, my laying my life down for him,
Because listen, church, if, if you really understand what he says here, when he says, I'm the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death in Hades. If this Jesus is standing before you saying, raise your head, don't be afraid. Fear not, come close. I have taken the judgment that you might enjoy the intimacy. If that's what he is saying to you, don't be afraid of anything. I've risen and conquered the de- death and the grave. And here's what you and I need to do. If he's the alpha and omega point of our life, here's how it just really touches down practically for you and for me. Listen, if you're someone who lives with a resounding sense of the fear of man, this is good news for you. Because if you have this Jesus saying, don't be afraid, I've risen, I've conquered death in the grave, then you need to learn to take those truths and you need to look in the mirror This might feel a little awkward at first, but preach them to yourself that he has risen, that he has conquered, that he's returning, that he is reigning even right now and remind yourself of the fact that he is saying fear not and look in the mirror and say, what can man do to me? What can man do to me? What can she do to me? What can he do to me? Students, what can my friends at school do to me? If this Jesus is who he says he is and he's as beautiful as, he, as he's portrayed here and that there is, he's saying, don't fear, don't fear, come close, then what can they do to me? Now listen, if you're a person who struggles with the fear of man like I do, that's good news. Some of you are like, well, I don't struggle with the fear of man. Yeah, let me press on that for a minute as we close. Right? I got this list from a guy by the name of Kevin DeYoung. He pastors a church up in Michigan and he's got 13 things here. I'm not gonna expound every one. I'm just gonna read them to you. Some of you are getting really nervous. <laughs> but here they are. How do you know if you struggle with the fear of man and if this is good news for you? Here it is. First, do you struggle with peer pressure? Do you give in to things against your will just to go along with the crowd? That's the fear of man in your life. And it doesn't get any easier as you get older, adults. Some of you think, oh, students struggle with that. Listen, it doesn't get any simpler or easier, but we just find more socially acceptable ways to kind of channel it in our lives. Peer pressure is the fear of man. Second, are you overcommitted? Is it impossible for you to say no to anyone about anything? Right? If you're overcommitted and you cannot say no, it could be a sign that you, what you love most is to be loved by others. Third, are you a people pleaser? Listen, he says, I hate to say this, and it, uh, all, uh, that all the very nice people out there, but if everyone likes you all the time, and no one ever has a problem with you, no one ever has an issue with you, it might be that there aren't really, you aren't really the most kind-hearted person in the world, but you simply know what people expect and how to please them. He says, unrelenting niceness can be incredibly man-centered. In addition, Or your relationships more about being loved and seeming lovely than actually loving others. See, many times our fear of offending and fear of confronting are less about our great love for the person and more about our desire to feel loved by them. We just want them to like us. In addition, you have a low self-esteem. It may seem counterintuitive, but self-esteem issues are usually rooted in pride. 
Usually, that's, if you trace them down to the bottom, that's where they find. You may revere the opinions of others and use them to build up your identity and sense of well-being. Do you struggle with self-esteem? That's rooted in the fear of man. Are you easily crushed by criticism? Anybody just want to sign up for a, 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 a tongue lashing, right? Do you enjoy that? I don't think anybody really enjoys that. But does it crush you? Are you easily crushed by criticism? No one likes to be criticized, but listen, if you put too much of your identity or any of your identity, other people's opinions about you, criticism will devastate you. And in fact, when you are criticized by other people for something that you did, those of you who struggle and you say, I just can't forgive myself, that's why. Because many times you didn't live up to the expectations that other people had of you and they criticized you and you just can't handle it. In addition, do you feel trapped by people's praises? So on the other side of the coin, because you can never live up to their expectations. Listen, being criticized is a burden, but the weight of people's praise can feel even heavier at times. You're constantly trying to receive a compliment. You're constantly trying to be, get an attaboy and a pat on the back. You want to be affirmed. You want to be acknowledged. In addition, are you second-guessing yourself constantly, worrying what people will think about your decisions? You may be naturally timid, and some people are. But you may also be loath to disappoint others or thought, be thought to be foolish. What are they going to think if I make that decision? If we go this direction, right? And some of it just boils down even to what restaurant are you going to go eat with your friends, right? What if, what if I... Am I constantly worried and second-guessing my decisions? In addition, do you get embarrassed often and easily? Now listen, we all do things silly, don't we? Anybody exempt from that? I know I'm not. And listen... Some of you who are students in the room, you're like, my, my family it just embarrasses me all the time. All the time. But listen, do you get embarrassed easily and often by little things? If so, it might be an indication that you're ruled by what other people think about you and other people's opinions. In addition, we're almost done. Do I tell little white lies to make myself look better about how much I pray or how much I give or how much I read or where I go? I, tell, I just kind of stretch the truth just enough so other people would be impressed by me and all the things that I've done. In addition, do I avoid people for fear of rejection? Do I pull back from relationships because I'm afraid they're not going to receive me? Listen, there's something that's not right in our hearts. If you're constantly suspicious that others don't like you, I must be thinking ill of you. Right, if you're just constantly fretting about what do they think of me, what do they think of me, do they, are they going to re- reject me, Am I, are they going to welcome me? And some of us are so timid of pressing into relationships with other believers in Christ, other born-again, blood-bought sons and daughters of God because we're afraid that they're not the right crowd for me to press into. I need a different crowd to press into. And if I can find the right crowd to press into, then I can be received and I won't worry about being rejected. But I'm worried if I get a part of this crowd, these cool people out here are going to ostracize me. The people who are on the up and coming, they're going to not want anything to do with me. In addition, are you obsessed with your body? Like, what? (laughs) Are you obsessed with your body? Now, listen, physical training is of some value. Paul even says that in the New Testament. And it's good to want to take care of our bodies, but fear of man turns into a healthy, turns a healthy self-care into an obsession with our shape, our color, and our size. Still think you don't struggle with the fear of man? Still think that's not an issue for you? Listen, 
It is for all of us. It was for John's early audience. And for those who had refused to bend their knee to the mission, but continued to bend their knee to Jesus and Him alone, they had conquered this fear of man in their life. And the way they did it was by making Jesus the beginning and the end, and everything in their life was moving from and to Him. Everything. He was their Alpha and Omega. And they had to constantly remind themselves and be reminded that he is risen, he is victorious. What can they do to me ultimately? Nothing. Next week we're going to jump into what Jesus has to say to the church, but this morning I want you to see the Jesus who is saying it. Because apart from seeing the Jesus who is saying it, you might walk out of here with some the next seven weeks with some more values to go check off your list, some more ethics to go and accomplish. But there is a difference between having Christian values and being a Christian. Are you captivated by this Jesus? Are you compelled by this Jesus? Let's pray together this morning that we as a church would be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's so applicable in our lives, the fact that it confronts us and comforts us. Father, the fact that it shows us so vividly this picture of your son, our savior. And I pray that we would be captivated by him. I pray that we would be compelled by him. I pray that as we see a tender Jesus, a discerning Jesus, as we see a, a judging Jesus and a holy Jesus, a Jesus who is mighty and immovable, a Jesus, a, a Jesus who is unshakable, I pray, God, that those areas of our lives that get shaken because of the fear of man, God, I pray that we'd find solid ground and foundation there. And that we would continue to live with loyalty to him even though we may never be called to physically die because of our loyalty to him. God, these next seven weeks, Father, would you, would you help us to see what you have to say to us at this juncture in our history as a church. We ask it in Jesus' name.